Hey boys, hope you're doing well today. I gotta tell you, I know that we haven't seen um, much of each other this semester, but as always, as Todd said last week, it has been such an honor and a privilege uh, to study God's word with you as we've been uh, chugging along through the book of Genesis. I can't believe it's already coming to an end. Just two more lessons, including today, if you can believe it. Uh, but today, whether if you're watching this tonight or tomorrow morning, we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 49. So go ahead and look there. In Genesis chapter 49, it's been 17 years uh, since Jacob first came down to the land of Goshen with his sons, where his beloved son, uh, Joseph, has been serving as viceroy. Um, now at 147 years old, um, he is starting to feel that this life is slipping away from him. And before he dies, he wants to make sure that he passes on um, blessings to his posterity, family blessings, covenant promises. He wants to be sure that he passes those along. This is his last will and testament. This started last week in Todd's lesson in chapter 48 when he was speaking to his grandchildren. And in this chapter, he gathers around um, his children to speak blessings over them too. I mean, in a lot of sense, he's kind of like Oprah. I mean, at this point, everybody's getting a, a blessing. But before we dive into this chapter, there's a few things that I want us to know about blessing in chapter 49. First off, these blessings aren't usually how we think of blessing. Uh, they're more like prophecies. And not all of them are good prophecies, as we'll see. Secondly, these prophecies are both retrospective and prospective. Retrospective in the sense that they look back onto the lies lived by Jacob's children, taking note of their character, certain things they have done or accomplished. Then it looks forward into the future, foretelling the consequences of those lies lived. Uh, thirdly, the greatest blessings that we're going to look at and spend the most time with are the words that he speaks over Judah and Joseph. We're going to spend a lot of time with those two brothers and what Jacob says to them. And lastly, much like the season of Advent, uh, the blessings of, of, of prophecy that Jacob speaks over those two sons are meant to cultivate our hope in Jesus. Ultimately, Genesis chapter 49 is a chapter of hope. So brothers, let us read it in hope, starting in verse 1, Genesis chapter 49. <clears throat> then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourself together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. 
He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his fowl to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulon shall dwell at the, sh at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his borders shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path, that bites the horse heels so that his riders falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessing of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of their everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers, let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful uh, for this day that we can come uh, together and study your word. We pray that you do a mighty work in our hearts. Um, Father, guard my tongue. Um, use this broken vessel for your glorious purposes. Do a mighty work in our lives, making us more and more um, like the greater Jacob, the greater Judah, the greater Joseph, Jesus, your son. We pray in his blessed name. Amen. Um, Advent, as I'm sure is the case for you guys, is one of my favorite seasons. Um, in Advent, among other things, the church is to intentionally uh, focus on the tension of the already, not yet. Already, Christ has come as those through have faith in him, we have been given immense blessings in Jesus. Yet, we're still longing for the day that he returns and makes all things new. And in that tension, as we're plodding along, um, we experience a myriad of things. We experience longing, but also joy. We experience disappointments and sufferings and grief, but never without hope. It's that Advent tension. Now, that was the case of the original audience for Genesis chapter 49. As Genesis concludes, it points forward to God's promise of rescuing Israel from Egypt, bringing them into the promised land. 
Now, by the time this was read aloud with that original audience, that had already happened. God in his grace had kept his promise and had rescued Moses and the Israelites from the clutches of Egypt. And it was ushering them into the promised land through the Exodus. But Genesis, its conclusion, as we're going to see, also points well beyond the Exodus account. For example, there's many prophecies in this chapter that Israel still has to wait for, that original audience. Most notably, the promised king that comes from the lion and the tribe of Judah. They're still waiting for that. So here's this original audience, the original people. They're plodding along between two advents, as it were. Um, they're, they're, they're called to, to, to wait on the Lord, to look to him, to trust in his promises, to hope in him and not the things of this world as they navigate that tension. And brothers, we're called to do the same thing. We're plodding along between two advents. Christ has come, but we're waiting for him to come again and make all things new. And as we are experiencing that tension, as we're plodding along between those two advents, the season of Advent, much like Genesis 49 does two things. One, it reorients us back to where our true hope is found. Our hope is not found in this world. Our hope is not found in ourselves or in other people or political parties or what have you. Our hope is found in Christ alone. That's what this chapter does. That's what Advent does. It reorients us back to that wonderful truth that our hope is found in Christ alone. But it also encourages us. It encourages us as we experience disappointment in this life, as we experience hardship, or hardships, as we experience the angst of longing. It encourages us to press on in hope, to trust God, his promises, and to live by faith. Hopefully those two things will come out in our two points today. First off, we're going to be looking at the Lion of Judah in the first half of this chapter. And secondly, we're going to pay, take note of the God of Joseph in the latter half. So let's look at this first point, the Lion of Judah. Now, actually, before we talk about Judah, I do want us to pay a special note to the, the words of blessing that Papa Jacob gives to his first three kids. In verse 1, he gathers his children around. In verse 2, he says, give me your ear because I have some things to say to you. All right. Now, in my mind, of all of the kids, those first three children... Uh, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, they were listening intently. Okay, they were, they were very curious about what their dad was going to say, because if you remember, um, each of those guys had committed colossal sin failures in their life, which up until this point really hasn't been addressed. Well, the chickens come home to roost in this one, okay? Jacob is about to address their past failures, and it's not really blessing. And in fact, it's, it's really more words of judgment, uh, words of, of cursing. But what I want us to see, even in these, in these very difficult words that these three brothers receive from their dad, we learn lessons of grace. And I want us to pay, take, take note of these lessons of grace before we move on to Judah. First off, we see Reuben in verses 3 and 4. Um, Gordon Winham, the scholar, calls this one of the fiercest denunciations in Genesis, okay? Um, this firstborn, what he hears from his father. Jacob starts by heaping uh, majestic descriptions on his, on his son. Majestic descriptions, um, undoubtedly referring to his birth order and his spiritual advantage of being the firstborn and the most 
important family in the history of the world up to date. Um, he was the firstborn. He was to be the chief inheritor of the family promises of God's blessing. He was to be the, the leader and the ruler um, after Jacob, right? But then Jacob changes his tone. Um, and, and, and undoubtedly because of the pent-up emotion that he's experienced because of what his, his son did, the revulsion of it. Remember what he did um, when he tried to upsurp his father's position, power, and authority by sleeping with one of his dad's concubines. And because of that, uh, Jacob announces judgment. And what he says is essentially, Reuben, there will never be good leaders from your tribe. You're not a good leader. There will never be good leaders in your posterity. Your, your, your tribe, it can't be counted on. It won't be counted on. It's like water. There's nothing firm about it. And what he says here actually comes to pass because there's no good king. There's no ruler. There's no priest or prophet that ever comes from the tribe of Reuben. And how devastating that would have been to hear it. If you're a Reuben, the firstborn, and that's what your father says to you. Uh, but brothers, I want us to take note of the lessons of grace we see in this. You and I have no reason to believe that Reuben was lost spiritually at this point. Okay. Um, in fact, James Montgomery Boyce gives us great reason to believe, if, if you look at the story of Reuben throughout the chapters we've been studying, that Reuben is saved. He's a faithful follower of Yahweh by this point. So what that means then is that this judgment is not an eternal consequence of sin, but rather it's a temporal consequence of sin. And what the scriptures teach us is that when God allows his people, his followers, to experience the temporal consequences of sin, it's not because he's mad at us. It's not because he's punishing us or getting his pound of flesh. Sometimes we think that. But that's not God's motive. What is God's motive? Well, scripture tells us it's out of love that our father does that. This is what we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines those that he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He's just like any good dad does not allow their kids to get away with anything. You know, if, if a dad did that, their kid's going to grow up and just to be a hellion, right? Any good dad who loves his kids is going to discipline them. That's what our father in heaven does. Uh, when, he, when he allows us to experience the temporal consequences of our sins, we know that he is being a good, good father to us. He is pulling us closer to himself. He is disciplining us. He's pruning us ultimately so that we would be more and more like Christ. This is a lesson of grace we see in the story of Reuben. Another lesson of grace we get from Reuben is that when we receive spiritual advantages or blessings or gifts from the Lord, um, monetary gifts, just the lot that God has given us, monetary blessings, whatever it might be. Of course, we give God thanks for those things, right? Because he's the one who is due thanks. We're also reminded that we're never to put our hope in those things, right? Because Reuben, firstborn, he um, was given a wonderful uh, blessing of being the firstborn. He had all these spiritual advantages, uh, but he lost those things, which reminded him and reminds us never to put our hope in anything other than Jesus Christ, brothers. <laughs> Often in Jesus's economy, you know, we're told the first is last and it's the last who will receive the crown. Let us always remember never to put our hope in anything other than Jesus Christ, because he is the only hope that will never disappoint us. We get lessons of grace from Reuben. We also get lessons of grace from Levi in verses five and seven. 
In verses 5 and 7, Jacob is referring uh, way back uh, in Genesis chapter 34 when these two brothers, in retaliation for the uh, uh, atrocity committed to their sister Dinah, go on a murderous rampage and commit great acts of genocide against the Shechemites. Because of that, Jacob judges them. He announces judgment upon them. He says, because of your violence, because of, because of the evil that you've committed, um, your houses will be divided. You'll be scattered throughout Israel. You will never inherit a portion of the land flowing with milk and honey. And that's exactly what happened. The tribe of Simeon was incorporated into the tribe of Judah. And of course, Levi, uh, they didn't have any land either. But brothers, God is such a gracious God that for his people, he brings blessing out of judgment. Just think about Levi. Yes, it is true that they had, they had no land of their own, but trace the prophecy. What happens? The Levites became the priests of Israel where God himself says in Deuteronomy 10, yeah, you don't have a portion in the land, but I will be your portion, Levi. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Uh, their home, their portion was the Lord himself. How amazing is that? And furthermore, great rulers came from the, the tribe of Levi. You have, you have Aaron, you have Ezra, and you have, you have Moses himself. Uh, brothers, what is this? The point is we should be encouraged even in these judgments these first three brothers received, right? Because first off, we do see that God brings his righteous judgment against sin. But as we trace these prophecies through history, for his people, God brings blessing out of judgment. And that's really good news for us. But that's not the best news of Genesis chapter 49, not even the best news of the first half of Genesis chapter 49. The main brother I want us to focus in on is Judah, the elevation of Judah that we see in verses 8 through 12. Now, most likely after uh, Jacob said these things to those first three brothers, Judah was probably shaking in his boots, right? Because he was no saint. <laughs> All right. He was a proper sinner. First off, when he was younger, he's one of the chief contributors to Joseph's misery when all of them were teenagers and young adults. Later in life, um, Judah impregnated his deceased son's wife, Tamar, thinking that she was a Canaanite prostitute. Okay, so his hands weren't clean in this. Now, it's true he did show deep repentance and remorse. There were evidences of great growth in character and faith in the latter chapters. But it's obvious he was not deserving of any blessing from Jacob, much less God and brothers, nor are we. However, God in his grace blesses Judah beyond his wildest imaginations, not only for his benefit, but also for ours. What we see in verses 8 through 12 is the promise of the lion, the messianic prophecy, the promise of the lion from the tribe of Judah. Now, there's three things that Jacob says in this prophecy. First off, he prophesies about the lion's dominance. In verses 8 and 9, he prophesies about astonishing dominance. He, 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 told, he told Judah that his other brother's descendants would bow down to Judah's descendants. They would rightly identify the proper rule and reign and authority of Judah and, and his posterity. Judah would become a ferocious lion, and he would take the enemy's of both God and the people of Israel by the neck. He would defend God's people. He, he's a ferocious lion guarding his family. 
And that's actually what happened, right? Because we remember King David, who is in the line of Judah, because of his exploits, would give rise to the messianic title, that the lion from the tribe of Judah, which would be applied to Jesus himself later in Revelation 5.5. But we're talking about extreme dominance, authority, a just ruler who will rule his people. Secondly, he prophesies about the lion's coming in verse 10. Now, verse 10 is one of the great messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, particularly in Genesis. Now, long story short, verse 10 is Jacob's blessing going way out into the future. All right, this isn't talking about the Exodus itself or right when they get into the land of Canaan. This is going well out into the future. And in verse 10, that phrase where it says, until tributes come to him, that is the scepter, And the rule and reign will remain in Judah until the tributes come to him. Who's him? All scholars are united in saying that that phrase is referring to the coming of the Messiah, his rightful rule and reign as king, and the day in which all nations will take a knee before him and worship. What that means is right here in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10 We have a prophecy about the first and second advent of Jesus Christ all the way back in Genesis 49. Jacob is giving us this beautiful prophecy of hope, talking about the lion's dominance, the lion's coming. Then lastly, the lion's reign. And what will this lion's reign, this Messiah's reign be like? Well, first off, there will be no end to it. When he comes, there will be no end to his reign. And what is the quality of this reign? His reign, according to Jacob, will be so glorious and so extravagant. It will be the golden age of abundance and celebration. So much so that water, or rather that wine, will be as common as water, is what Jacob says. And this isn't talking about the cheap $5 bottles on the bottom shelf. Okay, this is the choice wine made from the grapes of heaven. (laughs) This king will usher in the golden age of abundance and blessing and celebration. Brothers, what's the point? Genesis 49, just like Advent, is meant to cultivate our hope in Jesus Christ. We're to look to him and nowhere else. Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah who has been given the name that is above every name to whom every knee on heaven and earth shall bow and declare him as Lord. We owe him our allegiance. Our loyalty is to him. No other person, no other tribe, no other political party, no other nothing. Our loyalty is to him alone. He is the lion from the tribe of the Judah. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says to show him allegiance now and to praise him now is the sweetest employment that we could ask for. And to praise him in heaven will be our greatest delight. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Secondly, Jesus is the ravenous lion who destroys all his and our enemies, including the roaring lion that Peter talks about in his epistle, Satan himself. Jesus has given Satan himself, our ancient enemy, the finishing blow. Currently, he is wrestling the kingdom out of his clutches and bringing it into his rule and authority. He is delivering people who were previously locked in the dungeon of darkness. Aslan, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is on the move, brothers. He has come, and the better news is, is that he will come again. And when he does come again, he will usher us into the golden age of celebration, of blessing, and abundance. We have the guarantee for it. 
I mean, that's really what the, the wedding feast at Cana was meant to show us. Here, Jacob is prophesying that when the Messiah comes, there will be such great abundance, such great joy that wine will be as common as water. What happened at the wedding feast in Cana? The wine ran out. But then Jesus shows up and he turns water into what? Wine. And when his disciples saw that, and when they tasted its sweetness and its goodness, they knew the Messiah has come. Brothers, our faith did not just develop out of thin air, nor is it new. The promise of the Messiah was promised throughout Genesis and became a unifying theme in all the Old Testament. Verse 10, along with about 299 other prophecies, were fulfilled in the person of Jesus, who came and died and rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Genesis 49, along with the Advent season, reminds us that we have a hope that will never, ever disappoint us. So as we're waiting for Christ's return, as we're plodding along, as we are experiencing disappointment, trial, and tribulation, let us never, ever grow tired of hoping in Jesus because he has come, brothers, and he will come again a lion from the tribe of Judah. Now, the second thing I want us to talk about is the God of Joseph and what Jacob says about God. We see this primarily in, in uh, verses 20 through, 22 through 25. Now, as stunning as uh, Joseph's, or rather uh, Jacob's prophecy was on Judah, and it was stunning, um, Jacob doesn't stop there. He continues on blessing his sons in a way that was suitable to those children. Of course, this climaxes when he starts talking about Joseph. Joseph, of course, was uh, Jacob's favorite son and certainly most godly in terms of character. And in verses 22 through 24, Spurgeon says that Jacob really had to ransack heaven and earth in order to express the desire of his soul for his son, Joseph. Like, like he had to get a thesaurus out of heaven just to aptly describe how much he loved his son. Joseph was a very fruitful leader. Um, he was a very accomplished leader. He blessed people, even those who did not deserve blessing, those who had wronged him like his family. He remained faithful even in the worst of circumstances. Now, of course, all of that happened and was made possible, Jacob makes clear for us, not because of Joseph, but rather because of the God who loved Joseph. And in verses 24b through 25, Jacob lists a cascade of divine ascriptions describing just who this God is, not only for Joseph's benefit, but also for ours. He says about five things. First off, he says, God is the mighty one of Jacob. Now, essentially what he is saying is that the secret of your blessings, Joseph, the secret of your success, the secret of your fruitfulness is God alone. Never forget that. And we must never forget that either. I mean, had Joseph stood up against all of the enemies that came out against him during his life, if he stood up against them in his own strength, I mean, he was done for. He would have been a fulfillment of what Jesus spoke of in John chapter 15, verse 5, that apart from me, you can do nothing. 
I mean, he would have he would have fallen like a house of cards had he tried to live this life according to his own strength. But that's not what Joseph did. In the words of Jesus' parable of the vine and branches, he remained in God. He made his abode in God. He fixated upon God. That was the secret of his success and faithfulness. Furthermore, Jacob knew that he himself was a very weak person, even a coward. And so he, he, he told uh, Joseph, Joseph, never look to me, but rather look to the God who was a God to me, the God who obliged himself to a weak person like me. That is where your hope is found. The mighty one of Jacob. And brothers, let us remember that. Secondly, he says, God is also a shepherd, the shepherd. Uh, you know, that description must have stood out in Jacob's mind, who himself was a shepherd in the majority of his life. And because of that, he knew very well how difficult and unrewarding it is, right, to shepherd wayward, stubborn, helpless sheep. Now, the bad news of that analogy is, is that you and I are the wayward, helpless, stubborn sheep. That's just who we are, even as God's people. But the good news is, is that he is the shepherd who obliged himself to care for us, whom he cares for us through the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, his, his son, the, 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 the lion from the tribe of Judah is also our shepherd. He's committed himself to us and he will never let us go. <laughs> How tender and awesome and gracious is the care of the great shepherd brothers. God is the mighty one of Jacob. He is the shepherd. He's also the stone of Israel. Now, the general idea for this symbol is the unchanging dependability and sturdiness of God. Essentially, Jacob is reminding Joseph and all of us watching this and reading Genesis chapter 49 that we ought to build our lives, our thoughts, our dreams, and our hopes, not on the things of this world, not on the promises of this world, but on God alone. He is the only sturdy foundation. He is the rock of our salvation. Build on him alone is what Jacob is saying. Fourthly, he is the God of our father. Jacob, of course, is referring to himself. And he, I mean, his, his statement here of, of personal trust in God could not have been more clear. Uh, he, he is essentially telling his son, Joseph, Joseph, I know this God. Um, I was wayward. I was stubborn, but he committed himself to me. He was with me. He saved me and he helps me. I, I trust him, and so can you. He, he says that Yahweh is my God. Friends, how wonderful is it that he can express such a personal relationship with the one true and living God, but it's no less wonderful that Jacob now has the, the privilege and the responsibility of passing down that personal faith in Yahweh to the son whom he loves. And as fathers, we have that great privilege and responsibility as well to pass along the faith that we know. Lastly, he says, God is almighty. Now in the Hebrew, it says El Shaddai. That is the name in which God revealed uh, first to Abraham on the occasion of which God established the covenant of circumcision. And essentially, Jacob is saying, God, um, or rather, Joseph, this God, this God is our God. He is the one who has made us a people for himself. He has chosen us out of the world. Therefore, true blessing, true nourishment never comes from anything other than this God. You can trust him. 
He is the mighty one of Jacob. He is the shepherd. He is the stone of Israel. He is the God of our fathers whom helps us. And he is the almighty one who nourishes us and makes us a people for himself. And of course, it is this God who not only blesses Joseph, but also blesses each of us watching this. And what we're told in the remaining verses, particularly in verses 25 and 26, is that no matter how difficult our lot is, more how impossible it seems, how sufferable it is, they're not even worth comparing to the blessings in which God gives his people. Brothers, as those who are in Christ, we have been blessed beyond our wildest dreams. Uh, we have every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ, yet we are still waiting for the day in which he returns and makes all things new, and we experience those blessings in full. And on that day, we can't even begin to imagine in our holiest imaginations how glorious that day will be. This is our God, is what Jacob is telling his children, particularly Joseph and us watching this. Now, in the last remaining verses, the reason Jacob was so determined to be buried with his ancestors, as shown in the last remaining verses, is because he believed the words of blessing in which he just invoked so deeply in his heart. Jacob believed what he said. He had Advent hope. He, he knew that the blessing, true blessing and true redemption would not come from Egypt, would not come from anything in this world, but it would come from God. And he trusted the faithfulness of God to do what he promised to do. He had that Advent hope. And friends, he was right. God fulfilled his promises. 2,000 years later in Luke 2, when Simeon was patiently waiting in the courts of the temple for the consolation of Israel. And he saw that baby boy, Jesus, and he took Jesus into his arms, the lion. He praised God. And what did he say? For my eyes have seen your salvation. Friends, the Messiah has come and he will come again. Brothers, as we plot along, um, even when we experience disappointment and hardship and trial, always remember to take hold of these promises. Uh, take hold of the promises that have been fulfilled and will be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who is with us, the one who is for us, and the one who is promised on the day to come will usher us into the golden age of abundance and celebration. Praise be to him. Amen.